This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. You might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait! Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking, we'll use murder to sell deodorant so you just get bored with murder, right? We're talking, why would I kill her? She was the best meal ticket I ever had. And we're talking, Donald! And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking, Lulu! I kind of hate you because I had Donald. That was my thing. Ah, bummer. But you know what? It still works because... 90% 90% of this movie is Faye Dunaway's eyes, and the other 10% is her screaming. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, everyone, we are discussing Eyes of Laura Mars. Not the Eyes of Laura Mars, like I want to call it every time I fucking say the name. Every Just single time. Eyes of Laura Mars, everyone. Co-written mm-hmm. by John Carpenter and directed by Irvin Kirshner. Mm-hmm. 1978. It's an auspicious year for John Carpenter. Isn't that weird, right? So, you know, this comes out, so it's this writing gig. Halloween comes out October of this year, and then we got um, Someone's Watching Me premiering on NBC in November of this year. So, yeah, fall of 1978? Shit, John Carpenter. (laughs) Everything's coming up, Carpenter. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, this is a return for us, too, Joe, because we did discuss this film in one of our articles. uh, I want to say pre-podcast. Maybe it was during the first year of the podcast. Right. Yeah. Regardless, it's been a very long time, so I'm eager to revisit the debate about the female and the male gaze with you, Trace. Yes, absolutely. But before we do that, let's bring in our very special guest who's waiting in the wings. All right, everyone. He is the director of such films as The Ruins, Jamie Marks is Dead, Into the Dark, Midnight Kiss, Swallowed, and the upcoming The Passenger. You may also remember him from our previous episode on The People Under the Stairs. Please welcome back Carter Smith. <laughs> Tracy, you, you have to always use that voice. I, I, I think that that introduction voice is like so spot on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might, you get me a job as an announcer somewhere and I'll uh, yeah, keep somewhere, doing it. <laughs> somewhere, yeah, for sure. I promise. <laughs> Present, oh, oh, an All the Dead Boys fashion show. That's what I'll do. Yes. Oh, yeah, no. you can be the MC. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome, Carter. And thank you for coming on to this movie. Out of curiosity, have you seen this before? Yeah, you know what? I saw it probably... 
10, 15 years ago and like saw it like, but not like seriously saw it. Mm -hmm. And then I'd seen like bits and pieces and sort of I'd referenced it before and pulled stills from it. But then it wasn't until prepping for this that I went back and like really watched it again with a, with a, you know, watched it closely. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Joe, because you said you had watched this a lot. I, I had only seen this when we covered it for our article. But I feel like in the past couple of years, I've seen it get mentioned a lot more. And maybe that's because, I don't know, there was a, like a Screen Factory Blu-ray that came out a couple of years ago or something. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, John Carpenter's name, people describe it as like an American Giallo film. And I, it's kind of like, I don't want to say coming back because I don't know if it was ever here. Yeah, it's interesting to see it described as a minor hit upon release. Obviously, the late 70s is a very different box office game. But I like the idea that this is a film that kind of circulates a little under the radar and people discover it probably because of John Carpenter's relationship. And then, yeah, you know, I hope people sort of fall in love with it because I think it's a bit of a quirky film it does show signs of age like this is a very 70s movie Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. i think that there's a lot of hidden gold in here i think that people also discover it because it's such a perfect capsule of a very specific time in new york city when fashion and modeling and drugs and like when Mm -hmm. all of that was like at its kind of glamorous peak and it's sort of because everyone involved in it was so comfortable and well-versed in that world like they got it right which like Mm -hmm. normally does not happen so i think that that also just as like a style you know sort of pillar of style in terms of how you know movies that's also how people discover it it's so stylish i do love the idea that you know this is back in the day and age when we would just shut down columbus circle so that laura mars could do a fashion shoot i mean okay look i mean no disrespect by this uh carter but i was very much like a wow like are or were photographers like that famous like it was more of a bubble thing where it's like oh like if you're in the industry you know because the way this movie posits laura mars it's like she is like a world-renowned photographer yeah i mean i don't i don't think that the photographers were or are you know sort of famous in the sort of the heightened way that she is here right Mm -hmm. but like within an industry and within the world of advertising and and fashion and beauty like Mm -hmm. there are definitely you know upper echelons and and you know sort of superstars for sure that that get their way and that can do whatever they want (laughs) i i get i guess in this movie though we are only really seeing industry people we're not seeing any like normies talk about laura mar so that makes sense (laughs) i mean we see we see the normies like on the street watching her do that photo shoot and and they look just as like confused as (laughs) what the (laughs) fuck is this <laughs> yeah. I love the idea of somebody, you know, like let's say some some bum hick farmer guy from, you know, rural Canada coming to New York City on a vacation being like, "Oh my god, look at these ladies in their lingerie and the furs and the fire." Yeah. <laughs> Well, okay, let's jump into how this movie got made, because I do think that with an expert photographer on hand, we're going to have a lot to talk about about the movie itself. So, okay, this movie started as an original story um, called Eyes, written by John Carpenter. And this would be the first studio film he had worked on. Um, Previously, you know, he worked on his debut film was Dark Star, and he did Assault on Precinct 13. I don't know why he wasn't on hand to direct this, unless it was kind of a thing where it's like he wasn't big enough to be the director, so he was quote-unquote just the writer when this was going down. 
could it be that he was making Halloween? I mean, okay, but Halloween was filled in a couple weeks. Like, I I don't know if, like, mm. the scheduling thing would have been that big of an issue. <laughs> right. But I could also see them, you know, he they find this great script, and then, you know, the early plans for it with Streisand, like, oh, mm. he's not a big enough talent to oh. to handle that. So I could, mm-hmm. I could see them taking it away from him for that reason. That's that's kind of what I think, too. Although, I mean, to be honest, Irvin Kirshner didn't have much to his name before this either. Yeah. His most famous films would come after this movie. <laughs> right. But producer Jack H. Harris had worked with Carpenter on, his, on Dark Star, his directorial debut. Which, by the way, have either one of y'all seen Dark Star? I've not, I've not just heard of it. It's kooky. It's very low budget. I mean, it looks like I mean, they, they filmed it in a garage, basically, and it was supposed to be on, it's like set in the <laughs> and spaceship. And you could tell, <laughs> very much so. But it's kind of part of its charm because the movie it, it has like an oddball sense of humor to it, which is not what you would expect from John Carpenter. Hmm. Well, I say that, but I guess you know, look at Big Trouble in Little China. That's a very oddball movie, <laughs> right? Yeah. And even I think Starman has a, a sort of quirky romantic mm, very sensibility. Much. Yeah. But Harris optioned his 11-page treatment, and he planned to make the film independently of the major studios uh, with privately raised finance and Roberta Collins in the lead. But Harris's friend John Peters read the treatment, and upon reading it, became so enthusiastic about it, he was like, oh my god, my girlfriend Barbara Streisand could be the lead in this. And that's (laughs) kind of where it goes, but I do want to point this out. (laughs) This Peters guy was married five times, no shame, Uh, but while he was... (laughs) Except you clearly said it was shame. No, 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 because the shade is coming. Um, (laughs) While he was dating Barbara Streisand, so, you know, this movie uh, comes out in 1978. He was dating Barbara Streisand from 1973 to 1982, but he Hmm. was married to Miss Scarlet herself, Leslie Ann Warren, until 1975. Oops. Maybe they were separated. Yeah, I don't know. And what about his last wife? Do you know who his last wife was? Okay, are you asking me this because you know who it is? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, he married Pamela Anderson in 2020. And here's the thing, they got it annulled the very same year. Yeah. (laughs) So it wasn't a forever love, is what you're saying. It was, it sounds like it was a pandemic affair. Oh, well. You know what? Good on this guy for racketing up the hotties because that is a good track record. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so Peters got interest from Peter Goober, the then vice president of worldwide production at Columbia, and they agreed to finance the project's development. However, okay, and y'all walk me through this. So Streisand pulls out of the film after learning about the full storyline. You see, she's very scared of scary movies. And so when she Mm. saw the way the script was going, she changed her mind. And I'm a little curious because with a film of this plot, which granted, I don't even think this film was particularly scary, nor do I think it's trying to scare you. Mm. I'm just curious, though, when you have the premise of this film, why wouldn't you think it would be delving into horror territory? Maybe she just thought it was going to be stylish and and kind of, you know, a little more kind of fluffy and fragile. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or I wonder if maybe she was interested in the fashion photography, like playing this ultra glamorous, very successful woman. Yeah. And then it's like, ooh, you want to do ice picks into ladies' eyes? That might be too much. But I still think that's very silly because if you look at what happens to Faye Dunaway in the film, Laura Mars doesn't really get her hands dirty, per se, yeah. until the very climax of the film. The rest of the time, you're just shooting looking a little scared. Yeah. Well... Also, like, you know, if, if Streisand was interested in being, like, a strong female lead, 
Laura's a little, I mean, she's very successful and she's very powerful in her industry. But when it comes mm-hmm. to the store, this particular story, oh. I mean, she's kind of, she's passive. She's pretty passive and she's pretty leaning pretty heavily on Tommy Lee Jones you know, yeah. a lot of the time. <laughs> right. Well, and I will say, cause I, I, I couldn't really figure out all the changes between Carpenter's original story and his first draft of the script to, well, actually, I'm sorry, before I even get to that. So, <laughs> so Streisand, you know, pulls out of the film, although we do get her song Prisoner in here, making this the only movie featuring a Streisand song that she doesn't actually appear in. Right. But the people at Columbia were so excited about this script that they were like, fuck it, we're going to go ahead and get another actress. So they got Faye Dunaway, and this wasn't super convenient because i mean dunaway had just delivered academy award nominated performances in bonnie and clyde and chinatown and had just won the best actress oscar for portraying diana christensen in network however as a condition of this of her casting the studio insisted on the script being rewritten hiring david Mm -hmm. zalag goodman uh known at the time for his screenplays for straw dogs and logan's run to undertake the rewrites that is a wild track record right there. Yeah. Well, okay, so this is the thing. I was trying to figure out what was different, and I honestly, there's not really any information out there except with the ending, because Ooh, mm-hmm. apparently Goodman's version... Oh, sorry, apparently. Uh, Goodman's version of the script kept Carpenter's basic structure, but made one major change. Where Carpenter's killer was random, Goodman's is known to us. So, you know, we know it's Tommy Lee Jones. It sounds like the identity of the killer was not revealed in Carpenter's version. And that also Mm. kind of makes me wonder if the romance between Faye Dunaway's character and Tommy Lee Jones' character was even present in that film. Um. I wonder, because it does seem very much like oh, we have these two gorgeous leads. Like, let's, <laughs> yes. what would happen naturally between them? Mm-hmm. I, I have no idea. But nevertheless, Carpenter is on record as saying it wasn't a pleasant experience. The original script was very good, but it got shat upon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would argue that this is still pretty good. But yes, if you feel like your script has been completely tampered with or the... The ending was was sort of presented in the way that it was compared to what he envisioned it as i could see mm-hmm. it being upset by that but right i mean i you know if yeah i can only imagine what it's like to be a writer and have your work uh, maybe not completely change but if it changes maybe the point of your work then i could see that being very frustrating and given that we don't know the killer in his film that might have been the point <laughs> but <Right. you> know, <laughs> it's fine <laughs> but for the directing gig, yeah, they got Irvin Kirshner, who up until that point was known for dramas and comedies such as The Return of a Man Called Horse and the Barbara Streisand starring film Up the Sandbox. So I think that mm. might be how he came aboard because he probably was like on the list. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. But <laughs> yeah, he had been vetoed by Babs herself. And then he was just like, oh, I'm making this movie with someone else now. Hmm, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Although it's so funny because, um, you know, we, we, we had covered whatever happened to Baby Jane uh, earlier this year. And I was reading some of that feud book. And there's a whole bit on uh, Betty Davis working with Faye Dunaway on some TV movie. And and like she hated Faye Dunaway for being unprofessional and always late and making people wait around for hours on set. <laughs> hmm. But anyway, so yeah, you, but that's Irvin Kirshner. You may recognize his name, though, because, of course, right after this, he's going to be directing The Empire Strikes Back, which would he would then follow up with the non-official James Bond film Never Say Never Again, as well as 1990s RoboCop 2. Oh, okay. That's a wide 
uh, mm -hmm. array of <laughs> different types of projects. It's eclectic. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, it does feel like people were free to bounce between genres and styles of filmmaking quite a bit more freely back in those days. Because almost everybody that you've talked about, Trace, their credits are wild. All they feel the like place. mood swings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, hey, maybe it's politicized. I don't know. Maybe it's depending on how everyone was feeling at the time. Because uh, the 70s and the 80s were very different <laughs> decades. But filming took place over 56 days from October 17th, 1977 to early January 78 and took place entirely in New York and New Jersey. Columbia releases the film on August 2nd, 1978. And yeah, th this was a box office success. It made $20 million domestically against a production budget of $7 million. And... That's kind of where I'm like, how did I not know about this movie before 2019? Well, it's tiny. I feel like it's not a film that a lot of people randomly bring up. Like, I knew about this because I was doing research for my slasher course. And this film comes up a lot when you look at feminist takes on slasher films or anything to do with the male gaze. It's like, this is a top five movie for a lot of people. <laughs> but also, when you start to dig into... Not queer slashers, but slashers that queers like. This one does also tend to come up. Okay, then yeah. my question for both of you then, what, what is it that makes this film such a queer, a, a queer film? Oh my god, it's dripping with style. Like, yes. the hairstyles and the uh, outfits and the, the hats. and the topless models and the uh -huh. hats and the cloaks and the gloves and the all of it, like, you know? It's just mm -hmm. so stylish very stylish like even the moment when laura goes to that fucking dockside warehouse which i gather at the time That's her wouldn't... studio yeah yeah but i gather it wouldn't have been maybe as big of a financial deal as it is now but you look at it and you're just like look at the fucking star power of this woman with the hats with the capes with the slits in the dresses and yeah like she's oozing class and style and she's so in control of it like we'll have a lot to say about how she loses that power like you said carter but i think there's something very exciting about laura mars as a more mature quote-unquote final girl interesting okay well yeah put a pin in that because i'm sure we'll have too much to say once we get to the actual plot <laughs> of the film um well nevertheless reviews were mixed uh we're looking at a 56 percent on rotten tomatoes with an average score of 5.5 out of 10 we got a 49 out of 100 on metacritic and letterbox users have awarded it a 6.4 out of 10 okay hmm. no it's okay I'm, I'm surprised that it says that low like honestly <sighs> you know I feel like I'm going to be the one that likes this movie the least out of the three of us. I, I, I like it fine. I do think it's a little, it has some pacing issues. Yeah, it's a little slow yeah. in parts. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not the easiest to fault. Like, I feel like in a strange way, it requires you to pay really close attention to it. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, doesn't sort of go that well with modern viewers who <laughs> tend to be on their phones while they're watching or doing something else. Mm -hmm. But like, it's very easy to to get a little bit confused or lose the plot when when you're not actually paying close attention yeah i find particularly in the back half of the film when we're really going into red herring territory yeah. like michael and tommy and all of those kinds of standalone set pieces where you're just not really sure 
who is important to the plot that's okay yeah. that's honestly kind of a big issue is i, I know you know I, I mean everyone's spoiler alert of course but like as we get to the end you know we start losing the major male characters in the film mm-hmm. but the first bit you know we're killing all these women and i don't know any of these women as characters i mean i guess we kind of get elaine a little bit at this party but even the model lulu when she dies i'm like i don't really know who lulu is like mm-hmm. so i i yeah. don't care a lot about about these murders as they are happening and because of that passive quality of laura mars i don't always care about her either but i'll save it this is actually tracking very closely trace because i was going to argue that you've already kind of cued people to think of it but this does feel like an american giallo i know and i was thinking specifically this reminded me a lot on this rewatch of tenebrae and I like Tenebrae more than this. Um, okay. but, but But yeah, maybe we can just discuss some Giallo qualities as we go through it. And maybe help parse out why I'm not as warm on this as you two are. I mean, it's also fine if you're not as warm on it as we are. Like, that's a perfectly acceptable response. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't feel bad that I like it less than you two. I'm just saying. <laughs> but, uh, but that's it, Joe. So let, let, let's go into it. Okay. So before we get into the plot, I'm going to introduce uh, the one reference I'm going to be pulling in quite extensively throughout the episode. It's by Lucy Fisher and Marsha Landy called The Eyes of Laura Mars, a binocular critique. So basically, the it's an academic piece in screen. And I'm bringing it in for two different reasons. One, because these were college instructors. So it's two women who are teaching a college course. They didn't exactly elaborate on what but they brought this piece together because they found that their students were having really divisive responses to the film so they wanted to unpack how and why so uh, specifically they say at the beginning of the piece when we recently taught the film for example the students in the class were divided as to whether the film was unmitigated pornography because of its unrelieved fusion of sex aggression and spectacle or a subtle exposure of sexual politics, surfacing connections between female subordination and the media's exploitation of ways of seeing women. And I thought that that was really astute, but also this piece is from 1982. So in a way, it's an (laughs) academic discourse that's happening right around the time of the film's release, like less than four years later, this comes out. So I kind of thought it was a way of processing how critics at the time were looking at it, or rather academics. I always love having that, too, because I feel like so many of the sources we do pull are usually from more contemporary sources. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it goes back to like in The Hitcher when we found that critic from the 80s who was like, this is an AIDS allegory. <laughs> and we're like, unpack that. Oh, wait, it's behind a firewall and we can't find the fucking article. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but I'm glad you found this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they've got a lot of juicy stuff, but they also they kind of look at it in those two sorts of ways. So. In part, they're arguing, oh, yeah, it's offensive to women because of the way it's reinforcing the patriarchy and the male gaze and this kind of stuff. You know, Laura being a passive figure in her own film. But then they also look at it as a bit of a like a cultural critique, like, okay, the film may be doing this, but what happens if we pull back from it and look at the text as social commentary and so on? Hmm. So all that to say, that was a long preface. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so. We open 
on a photo of Laura Mars, who is played by Faye Dunaway, and it slowly becomes a negative image, and then the film will do that again at the end. This is almost a full two minutes, by the way. This is almost a full two minutes that we are just looking at this photo. (laughs) We're not just looking at it, Trace. We're also listening to Barbara Streisand singing Prisoner. (laughs) I I will confess to you, I don't think that the song matches this movie at all. Okay, so Fisher and Landry would disagree. (laughs) So they say the introductory and concluding song in particular performed by a woman emphasizing imprisonment, psychic pain, and oneric experience merges with the film's situating of a woman as the focus of vision and verbal aggression and physical assault. Um, Let me clarify, um, because I didn't listen to the lyrics of the song. I don't think it sounds (laughs) (laughs) like it belongs in this movie. (laughs) Trace was like, mm, I just want it to be a little bit more like, uh-huh, Boogie Nights. hey, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Which apparently that song was like a top 10 hit or something. Like the soundtrack was very well received. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a, that was a huge disco hit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, that's why I'm like, oh, I didn't know disco. I know Donna yeah. Summers and that's it. Well, it's so funny because, you know, I've been going through like uh, building my vinyl collection with all of Cher's discography. And she has mm-hmm. two heavy disco albums from this time period that were. I bet they're great. Well, they are. But one was a big hit and then her second one was a big flop. So no one really knows about them because no one like links Cher with disco. To disco. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which is wild, because I bet you, like, I can totally see her voice. And I mean, maybe this is just because of what happened when she got technified with Believe. But there's certain artists where I'm thinking, like, oh, I bet if they put out a disc in this style, it would be great just because of who they are and the kind of music they make. Well, also, fun fact, um, one of Cher's disco albums, the second one that was forgotten, uh, is called Mm -hmm. Prisoner. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I wasn't even considered for this role. I'm just going to make a whole fucking disco album. (laughs) And that was 1979. So, you know what? Maybe she saw Laura Mars and was like, you know what? (laughs) That's Dreisand's on to something. (laughs) I'm glamorous. I'm beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) okay so post credits yes after the two minute song is done we open with a point of view shot as someone attacks doris spencer who is played by meg mondy in her home basically finishing her off with an ice pick into the eye but we don't really see that so much as we see it go into a framed picture of laura aka the image we are just looking at over the credits and then we match on cut to laura As she wakes from this nightmare. So you're kind of like, ooh, is it a dream? Is it real? Spoilers, it's real. But uh <laughs> And then she wakes up in that in that amazing glamorous bedroom. Okay. Oh my <laughs> god. I, I, heart I, I messaged Joe it. immediately and was yeah. like, I want to wake up in this giant circular bedroom with uh-huh. floor-to-ceiling mirrors as walls and no furniture. No other furniture inside <laughs> yeah. of it. Just like plush carpet and like, you know beautiful bedding <laughs> it's tan and taupe mirrors everywhere i mean it everything about this movie is so hyper stylized and glamorous but particularly her fucking i'm gonna call it a bachelor pad because yeah. this looks yeah. like a place you bring people back to to fuck yes well, and i'm just saying though because we said there's no furniture so the back wall the one behind her bed is made up of her cabinets, nightstands, and shelves. It's built into the wall, and mm-hmm. I think that is a brilliant architectural choice. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a space yeah. saver. Yeah. yeah. I want it now. <laughs> that was custom made, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. 100%. Yeah, probably for this production. <laughs> yeah. 
okay. So she, you know, she calls somebody, but they don't answer. Presumably she's trying to get a hold of Doris, but uh, it doesn't matter because Doris isn't a character in this movie. Nope. <laughs> so uh, that evening, she is dropped off at an art opening. It'll be revealed to be hers. And the first character that we see that she's interacting with properly is her driver, who is Tommy Ludlow, played by Brad Dourif with an absolutely ginormous amount of hair. I think he looks so sexy in this he movie. Does. He does. And his wardrobe, great. the way his jeans and his leather jacket, all of, uh, like, everything about him in this movie is good. I mean, I will tell you, it's not that I've never found Brad Dorf unattractive, but like my eyes were opened in this film. Raul mm-hmm. Julia is sexy in this film. And yeah. even Tommy Lee Jones, who I always think looks looks like he's just like a wrinkly old like raisin head. Oh, no. God. Looks so, I mean that like lovingly but (laughs) but he is so sexy in this movie so yeah he's he was giving me like sort of josh hartnett vibes yeah is not helping yeah Mm -hmm. i thought he was super sexy in this Mm -hmm. oh man the the men are just there's well here's the thing i'm gonna lay the cards on the table i do agree with you carter i think this movie is so sexy and stylish it's definitely one of the reasons i really gravitate to it but also the 70s are just so my fucking jam in yeah. like the look of everything like watching even Tommy Lee Jones at one point he gets out of a cab or a car and he's wearing a suit and it's just a suit but the pants are so flared it's just like oh god and his shoulders in the 70s. just so <laughs> is 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 Urban Kershaw gay do we know I I don't think so. Yeah, hold on, because I, I always check for people's spouses on their Wikipedia page. <laughs> it's a good cheat. I do not. Uh, oh shit! No, well, he has two children, um, but no spouse, so he could be gay, but I doubt mm. it. No, that would explain why this whole thing was so stylish. Right. <laughs> or we had gay art director, production designer, oh, yeah, hair, sure. makeup, all of that. Yeah, Someone all of that sure. was gay on this production. <laughs> more than one. <laughs> yes, more than one, definitely. Okay, so Tommy drops her off and she is immediately greeted by her bestie, Donald Phelps, who I'm going to get the name wrong because I never have to say it out loud. It's Rene Aubergenois. Oh, thank you for that. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds right. Okay, (laughs) I was like, it looks French, so I'm going to say it the way I would if it's French (laughs) and I'll be corrected, I'm sure. I obviously know him from Star Trek. But. I was like, you can cut this out, but it was so funny because literally watching this yesterday and I'm watching The Good Wife um, and what happens, but he's a guest on The Good Wife, like literally the episode I watch right after I watch this movie. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. Trace is going through The Good Wife and basically discovering that every single person. Every in actor in everyone. Yeah. <laughs> it's law and order, only better. Yeah. <laughs> So Donald is obviously one of the biggest reasons that we get to cover this film because he is unabashedly queer and not femme because he really will not put up with anyone's shit in this movie. Mm -hmm. Wait, 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 wait. Gentle Mm -hmm. pushback. You are insinuating then that if you are femme, you would put up with someone's shit. Uh, In movies of this time, let's Mm -hmm. say it that way. Gotcha. Like, in in a lot of ways, he is a token queer best friend, right? He is here to support Laura's journey to the point that he literally dies for her. But as a standalone character kind of removed from Laura, I do really like that kind of soft and hard mix from the character. 
Yeah. No. I mean, right before he dies, I'm jumping ahead, but right before he dies, he's dressed in women's clothes Mm -hmm. and is still pushing back. And so I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And he's also the one, he's her agent. He's the one that's, you know, controlling the career and and controlling the client's access to her and and sort of who gets time with her and doesn't get time with her and who Mm -hmm. makes it on the schedule and who doesn't. Yes. And that's that's explicitly how he's introduced here, right? Like he shows up as she's getting out of the car. He guides her through this throng of reporters and feminists. This movie has a troubled relationship with gender politics, I think, or at least it's doing something interesting with it. But like immediately as we're introduced to Laura's art, which is very provocative and very sexual. And yes, a little bit violent we have people like sheila who berate her with questions about whether her art is feminist or if she has any social responsibility to atone for so what do y'all feel about this i i love conversations about this you know and like uh we're kind of like in this uh what we're in this like second wave feminism i guess at this time or maybe we're beyond that i think it'd be the tail end of second wave okay but like because her photos are just reenacting crimes. Are, 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 do we do we know if there's explicitly or only crimes against women? Well, actually, no. They're because... actually they're actually like the the ones in the show are uh, Helmut Newton photographs. Mm-hmm. I mean, Helmut Newton was a huge photographer at this specific time, and I think that that's you know it's commentary on his work in part, right? The most iconic photographer of, of this moment. I mean, there's Avedon, there's there's Helmut Newton, but like you know, it's a it's a naked woman you know, with a Doberman or mm-hmm. it's a, it's like, there's that picture of, of the naked woman, like wrestling with the taxidermy bear. Right. And like the, the, the violent images are only presented sort of later as part of the book. Like the mm-hmm. ones that the ones at the, at the, at the actual opening, I think are, le- are a little bit less violent if I'm not mistaken. No, I think you're right. But they're, but they're like, super aggressive and they're, you know, they're, they're confrontational for sure, but they're mm-hmm. less violent than the pictures that that work their way into the story later that match the crime scene photos. Well, mm. I guess because oh god, is the word misogyny ever thrown in this movie? I don't think I I hear you know the woman's like oh d- does she know that her work is harmful to women? Right. But again, yeah. like why? Yeah, looking at a lot of this, I never see it like being like explicitly just about women. Yeah, maybe I can bring in Fisher and Landy to help us again. (laughs) So they say the sadomasochistic thrust of her photography is clear, with women placed either in the role of mutilated victims or Amazonian assailants. In both situations, women's bodies are fetishized and the connection made Mm. between female sexuality and violence. And in some ways, you can then look at the high fashion photography of Laura Mars sharing the same mise-en-scene with pornography. Which, of course, obviously has misogynistic undertones. Hmm. I mean, they're definitely fetishized. I mean, they're all, all their representation is fetishized for sure. Yeah. But like, like strangely, like I find them less sexual. <laughs> like a lot of the pictures, like they're, they're, there's a coldness to them. Do, mm. but, uh, I guess, are we using the word fetishization? Like, is that a negative in this? I, for, it doesn't for, have to be. I don't necessarily think so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think the film is 
as you said, Carter, if you know who the pitchers are referencing, then you could take this as almost like a gender flipped criticism of it, right? You know, if a man does it, is it art? And then if a woman does it, is it sexualized pornography? And she's like a gender traitor or something. I do think that that's part of what Carpenter's script is playing with at the end of the day. It's, you know, we've propelled this woman to the height of popularity and fame to the point that these pitchers, which... I mean, when when she is in the car and we drive by the bus and see the perfume ad on the side, I was like, yeah, that does look like a perfume ad. But also, wow, I'm kind of surprised that any brand would ever want to work with her. Like my husband walked through as I was watching it and he said, what brand is going to pay for this picture of the man getting (laughs) shot in the pool or the fountain? (laughs) And I think part of it is that it is meant to be a little bit ridiculous because it is commentary, but it's like... It's presenting it as, well, why is this such a big thing? Is it just because it's a woman photographer? Well, and I was actually going to ask Carter, because Carter, I mean, look, you're all the Dead Boys photos. Like, you could argue they're fetishistic, but they're you yeah. have men instead of women. So I was actually wondering if you, like, I don't know, felt a kind of kinship with Laura Mars while she was going <laughs> through all this shit. I mean, I haven't been sort of aggressively uh, chased with the same sorts of comments. So right. I, I might have a different answer if that wasn't the case. But I mean, I think that there's something about what she's doing, which, you know, if you're to believe her, you know, she's creating images and, and creating scenarios that she had like have come to her as visions. I mean, that even, right. you know, and, and that's even before like the events of the movie and the, you know, the killings, like she says, like we go through periods in our work and there was a, there was a period when I started to get these, these, these visions of these violent things happening. And that's when I, my work shifted to this. Mm-hmm. So it seems like, you know, she's saying like, that isn't necessarily like her, you know, one trick pony thing where she's just doing the same thing over and over. It, right. it, it sounds a little bit like it's something that she, you know, stumbled upon or, uh, you know, sort of found and then ran with. Right. It, in, in the film, that's kind of seems like that's what shot her to fame. You're absolutely right, because we we get a reporter who like basically critiques whether or not this is sellable art or if it's, you know, blah, yeah. blah, blah, whatever, that's fine. He's apparently a real life reporter. So this is a cameo of a real life figure. But um, in the very next moment, when Laura is sort of overhearing people talking about her work as she moves down the bar, she stops and she mentions that she's about to go back to the border to shoot more war photography. So yeah. this isn't a one trick pony thing like this is all publicity for the book that she just published but she does a lot more than just this it just seems like you're right carter this is the thing that has launched her into the stratosphere Mm. and because of that now people want to critique her like ooh, okay well are you selling out by leaning into the sensational and using it to sell perfume and jeans and furs and lace yeah Mm -hmm. i mean that 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 shot moving down the at the bar like once again, coming back to like how impeccably this thing is cast mm-hmm, and yeah. how the people at that party are styled. And like, that's a New York that I want to live in. Right. I, mm-hmm. Honestly, yes. I, I look at this and I'm like, God, I kind of, I wish I, yeah, I wish I lived in New York sometimes. Um, sure. But I also wish I had money. It's not like that. It's not, it's not like this. Don't, don't, don't. Well, right. but, but that's what I'm saying. But like at this time period uh-huh. in this industry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in this movie, as long as I'm uh, not yeah, getting in murdered. This movie. It's it's there's a lot of ifs there's a lot of hypotheticals in my desired scenario but I I, I stand by it. 
Sure. Yeah, yeah. I 100% agree. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the bar, she runs into a man who does not identify himself, but he is speculating about the identity of the artist. And he calls the work trash and suggests that she is a frustrated voyeur. And of course, this is an awkward meet cute because they will very quickly realize what their real relationship is to one another, um, you know, until we get to the end where they have a very different relationship <laughs> but i'm i'm bringing fisher and landy back in so they say the identification of the audience with the psychotic and the violent criminal is unambiguous the voyeurism like i think the the word voyeurism the fact that he uses it to describe her work is actually very telling for the film's thesis so back to fisher and landy they say the voyeurism of which Laura is accused by Neville when he first meets her is thus attributed to the external audience as it occupies this privileged space in the scrutiny of mutilation, which is really just a fancy way of saying, you know, we're projecting things onto her, but it's also like we're projecting things back onto the audience because this movie is doing a fair amount of meta commentary. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, let's say, like, what? Like, do we find violence entertaining? Is this the shit that passes for mm -hmm. art these days? Yeah, but even, like, we are complicit in the murders because even as much as Laura is seeing them and the movie kind of holds her accountable, like, oh, well, you're aligned with this killer because of the sensational work that you're doing. We as an audience are aligned with her and are therefore also seeing the killer committing the murders and are complicit in them. Hmm. Okay. And we're also enjoying the full yes. regalia of her debaucherous photo shoots. You know, <laughs> like it, there, there's something undeniably like fun about those scenes, you know, the way that they're state like, so we're also as an audience, like swept up in, in the moment of, mm -hmm. of creating these images. Well, I was going to say, we're talking about the music earlier, and like y'all mentioned that Diddy that plays in the, in the, in the, shoot we'll get in the middle of the film but yeah it's like a very much like a, oh shit like this is a completely different vibe of this mm -hmm. movie that i'm in and yeah it really does pull you right in sure yeah. it's like do we have time for a musical montage yeah, hell let's yeah get into it always <laughs> so at this point laura learns that doris has in fact been murdered so she leaves the party and that night she calls her friend elaine who is played by rose gregorio and they're talking on the phone. We're basically introducing the concept of second sight. And Elaine's not really biting. But that's in part because she's being distracted by Michael on the couch next to her. Michael is played by Raul Julia. <sighs> this is not a great role, but he elevates it. <laughs> <laughs> so full disclosure, like, you know, I watched this movie once, you know, back when we did this article. And I haven't seen it since. And I... I truthfully forgot a lot of this movie i forgot this man was even in this movie well it's because michael's a shit part so he's easy to forget well yeah, that's the thing i got excited when he popped up i was like oh my god i can't believe i forgot raul julia was in this movie and then yeah he's like basically barely. exists to only be a red herring and he's mm -hmm. barely in the movie yeah. yeah and that to me speaks of some of the pacing and the characterization issues that you may have with it trace where you're just like wow i mean i i don't think they looked at it and said we've got raul julia give him a couple no, of scenes no, no. He wasn't he wasn't that at this point in his career, but he's obviously an incredibly dynamic character. And you think, well, if you wanted to make him a red herring, you should bring him back and not maybe sideline him for about 45 minutes. I feel like he makes a better red herring, at least than Tommy. And so I think a big issue with the third act is that we're kind of putting the pin on both of them, but focusing it more on Tommy. Mm -hmm. So both of those characters resolutions, i.e. their demises, um, they, they just happen so quickly. Like it's like the blink of yeah. an eye. Right. 
Yeah. But I do remember the first when I the first time I watched this being like, "There's four really good possible options for who this killer is if it, if yes. it is in fact someone close to her." And it's not like, "Oh, there's you know there's one and there's a bunch of there's a couple of other options that are like really weak, you know, mm-hmm, sort of right. second stage suspects." Like all four of them seem plausible, which I I mean I, I kind of like that. Well, and I yeah. think that's maybe what Carpenter was getting at, right? Because the screenplay we have means it's more of a whodunit film. You know, mm-hmm. like we're building towards the identity of the killer. Whereas, I, again, without having read Carpenter's original script, I feel like maybe the, the commentary was more on Carpenter's point of view because the identity of the killer didn't matter for him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I can definitely see it. I'd be curious to know if it plays stronger because I do think one of the other things that if people don't love this movie, they do point to the romance almost being a distraction. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But nevertheless, we have Raul Julia as Michael here, and he's basically a rapist because he proceeds to just try to fuck people that keep telling him no. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he is struggling with his uh, alcohol addiction, so... I think we're meant to excuse a lot of his behavior because he's not always in control of his faculties. That is not me apologizing for someone <laughs> who is forcing himself on people, but granted, Elaine, she's like, no, no, no. And then after like a couple kisses, she's like, okay. <laughs> well, I do find this relationship fascinating because we only learn after Elaine, spoiler alert, is about to be killed in about two scenes that she's not only Laura's best friend, but that she basically took Michael in when he came back. Like, he and Laura are separated or divorced, but he basically is still in love with Laura, but came back because he's using Elaine as a meal ticket, and Elaine lets him? Without telling Laura, presumably. Well, I actually wasn't 100% clear if... Because when um Neville, the Tommy Lee Jones character, is talking to her later... She doesn't seem that upset by it, which would mm-hmm. I, which would imply to me that she knew or that she's just so far removed from Michael as like a romantic interest because right. they're done that she just doesn't care. See, I thought that she like I, I didn't buy that he actually was still in love with Laura. Like I thought he, when uh, he no. says that to her, he was just saying it to try to make the best of like a bad situation. Right. And I think that he and I was really surprised by how easily Laura is kind of falls for it for him mm. like again and, and she gets that phone call like he's, he's in a what laundromat and he's he needs my help and he's talking right. about suit like I have to go to him and this yeah. is like well later on in the movie and I'm like mm-hmm. girl you gotta like he's bad news like <laughs> yeah come on. I, so I, I, I agree with you Carter I think there's two ways to read that too I think you can read it as oh my god she's like caving to her ex ooh bad woman anti-feminist or she's a really good person who is trying to help yeah. a friend yeah mm-hmm. i mean she does truly seem to care about yeah, nearly everyone sure. in her life in some cases she's more of a boss figure but even when she hears that tommy the brad Dourif character has this criminal past which is it's not like he went to jail for shoplifting or no. something like it's kind of <laughs> yeah. serious armed robbery yeah. armed robbery <laughs> but but, she, but her reaction is is like you know, oh, what did you do? Are you okay? Like, yeah. it, was, it was caring and kind of... I do think you know. that's her. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, the, the scene where he apologizes, she's like, no, 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 I'm sorry. Like, it endears me to this character so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I do think you can read it both ways, Carter, where it's like, yeah, she is a pushover, but also she's good to the people that she lets into her life. Yeah. I'm gonna tell you right now, if my ass is being stalked by a serial killer, y'all are all shit out of luck. 
(laughs) (laughs) I'm standing your ass in the elevator and hoping you go first. (laughs) Yeah, please don't call me for help. I will not be coming. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so the next day, Laura arrives for her shoot at Columbus Circle with models Lulu, played by Darlene Flugel, and Michelle, played by Lisa Taylor. And yeah, this is... Models in lingerie (laughs) and fur pulling on each other's hair in front of a fiery car wreck. And it's everything. It's so good. It's everything that you want, like a, like a, a photo shoot to be. I mean, that that's, these were the kind of shoots that were just so much fun. (laughs) What was I going to say? So, so are these what your photo shoots are like, or have you had photo shoots like this Carter? Absolutely. I mean, you know, not, uh, necessarily. I know. I mean, I've I've done big ones like that. Like I've done, you know, they just they just didn't involve uh, models in lingerie, you know, sort of fighting with burning cars in the background. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I've done shoots where we closed down Fifth Avenue, Ooh. like you know, in front of Tiffany's in the middle of summer, so we could do a Christmas campaign, and we had snow machines, and the entire street was blocked off, and we had a Santa Claus and a sleigh, and like all of Tiffany's was closed, and like literally like dozens of extras and you know i mean big scale like this kind like this kind of scale and it's really fun (laughs) (laughs) because it kind of looks like organized chaos you know i'm i'm really into it when we're in that little camper and laura's like make her eyes bigger do this with her hair and it all feels like a frenetic energy and a rush but then when you actually see the mechanics of it, you know, the one model is pulling the model's hair and she's like, you don't have to pull it so hard. Girls, I love it. Give me yeah. more. <laughs> just like, oh, I think that's the perception, right, though. It's like at the end of the day, this is still a job. This is still work. And yes, right. it can be fun. But I feel like the entertainment industry, be it photography, films, television, whatever the fuck. A lot of people are like, oh, it's so fun and glamorous, which it is but it's also still a job (laughs) and it can be painful and it can be difficult it can be you know all of those things i mean the one thing that they did you know obviously they knew what they were doing when it came time to shoot the the photo shoot stuff like there's a you know i don't know if you guys noticed but like there was a lot of like the models rocking back and forth like mm-hmm. in in the same position, which yes. is which is something that you do. Like that's that you know a model will figure out. Okay, you know everything looks good when my right foot is going forward, my chin is a little up, my right my left shoulder is back, and so she'll just do that over and over and over because that's how the clothes look best, and that's how her hair looks best, right. and that's where the light is. And so there's there's this weird kind of robotic zombie repeat thing mm. that mm. happens, which is. Uh, they definitely got right. <laughs> that is fascinating because I kept thinking, shouldn't they be standing still so that you can capture as much detail? I was thinking about whether they would be blurry or they would be captured in motion or something. But everything that you're saying makes way more sense. Yeah, like if the light is right and the you know, I mean, if all that stuff is is all set up properly, then you know that you don't have to worry about movement. But all like mm-hmm. all that stuff like in the motorhome, talking about the lips and the hair and like mm-hmm. that's. I mean, it's kind of what it's like. I mean, it's maybe not quite as like snappy and like it doesn't quite happen so fast. But those right. conversations happen, you know, on a daily basis. And well, I guess I, I was curious though because even in that scene, I was like, oh wow, yeah, she's giving not giving makeup tips. You know, I want the eyes to look like this. I want the hair to look like this. So like, mm-hmm. when you are like the photographer on a shoot like this, do you have that? Like, are you basically the director? Like, do you have that kind of yeah. power? Yeah. Huh. Huh. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're obviously you're working with talented people, right? You know, you're working with great hairdressers and great, and so it's sort of a, it's all a collaboration. 
but absolutely, you know, the photographer would, would be the one to be like, you know, she should have neon fuchsia lips and the hair mm. needs more height and the, you know, I mean, all of it. Yeah. Give mm-hmm. this outfit to her and, you know, you're driving the ship. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, for some reason, when you look on Wikipedia, you can't find the character. I don't know why he doesn't show up. But in this mix is Bert, who is the person who's constantly fighting with Donald throughout the film. And right. he's basically representing... Yeah, he's the client. So he's looking at, you know, like, oh, we need something different. And Donald at one point just has to say, you hired fucking Laura Mars. You (laughs) need to let her do her job because this is what she's doing. Like, this is what you brought her on for. Yeah. Every photographer needs to see the layouts. You don't need to see the layouts. What? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, because she's got them in her fucking mind because she she saw that in a crime scene two years ago. (laughs) The one, one of the girls, the the Michelle character played by Lisa Taylor, she was actually a supermodel at the time. She was, she was, uh, I think it was, I don't know if it was her first acting role, but she was a a proper supermodel. She'd been on the cover of Vogue four times. She was working, you know, doing everything and she was kind of like the it girl of the of the mid 70s uh so that's really them selling the the realness of the authenticity of it yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) i love that i'm like oh the realness bitch don't be bringing out rupaul drag race turns on this (laughs) oh my god (sighs) okay so obviously there's a little bit of like various coded things you know when laura says oh i want her eyes to pop it's because we're meant to be constantly thinking about eyes, vision, voyeurism, photography, and so on. And then, midway through the shoot, suddenly her eyesight gets obscured by a point of view of Elaine going up her stairs. And this is when Laura leaves the set. She hops in a cab. She's a rich bitch, so she abandons the cab when it gets stuck in traffic. And then she stops right in the middle of the street so that we can watch Elaine get murdered stabbed in the eye with an ice pick also I'm sorry this hat I I, I think it's a hat that she's wearing <laughs> like a that weird cap like thing yes because it, it like ties under her chin I mean it's like a <laughs> yeah. I, I, can, we, can we back up a second and talk about how much like a sort of Hester Prynne she looked like at the opening yes like, oh my god there's something sort of very scarlet letter about the that mm-hmm. that whole look that I was like well, really that is crazy well i mean here she's got the dress with the double slit and then she literally crouches down like she's doing martial arts or yoga or oh something. i love that pose yeah. too that, that's i mean part great. of it is like i think it's a testimony to the physicality that faye dunaway is bringing to the role like she is very sexy but also she's as you said Trey, she's making this look like work you know she has to be yeah. physically active to do this shoot as well and yeah. when she's running to Elaine's, I don't know if either of you clocked this, but she runs on cobblestone streets and runs at full speed yeah. in high mm-hmm. motherfucking heels. Well, she she runs she does a not lot. Miss a step. <laughs> yeah. The second she has one of these visions, even if she's like miles away from the from the murder site, she is running, yelling this person's name mm-hmm. <laughs> as yeah. if they can hear her. <laughs> She is full Do you know how hard it running. is to run on cobblestones in high heels? I Ooh, don't think it's easy no. to run in high heels, period. Much Let less cobblestones. cobblestones. <laughs> yeah. And she did it so flawlessly. I think that's part of the reason why the gays love this movie, too. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and you have to remember that within the world of the film, like the diegetic world of Eyes of Laura Mars, she literally can't see anything. 
because she's watching the murder. So she doesn't know where the oh. fuck she's going. So she's running in heels on cobblestone yeah. with somebody else's eyesight. I, yeah. I have something to say about that plot. Me- I, like that, I was going to say plot mechanic or a stylistic choice or mm-hmm. whatever the fuck you want to say when we get to the climax of this film. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> so i'm gonna bring fisher and landy back in so in these sequences when her literal vision is eclipsed we will eventually come to learn that it is a man who is taking over so in some ways laura is seeing like a man so the film literalizes the notion of laura's male vision her work is not only influenced by a patriarchal point of view but her sight is literally taken over by a man so at the moment so at the moments of her psychic inspiration, her own female vision is blindsided and she stumbles around, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I I think this is an interesting piece where the film is having that conversation about gender and whether her passion, her photography, is it also the result of sort of stepping into a right. man's role, right? Because it's not her vision. It's a man's vision. Yeah, but I mean, I think the conversations we've had about like the level of her success and how she's managed to accomplish what she has, it's by co-opting very sort of male-dominated imagery, right? It's sexualized Mm -hmm. women, it's violence, and so on. So I think you could look at it as a negative, like she's literally being forced into a man's role in order to succeed. But you could also look at it as, oh, she's playing the game, right? Well, And and she's in control, like... In her studio, on those sets, like mm-hmm. she's in control. There's no, you know, man vision that is is right. guiding that and supporting that. Like it's, I think it, I feel like it's very much her that is the the creative center of of the images that she's creating. But I've seen women say that's not entirely true because yeah. the images she's all being fed are from this killer man. Well, but that's yeah. the thing, though. So, like, so her images are are literally the male gaze, but are they also, quote unquote, the male gaze? Hmm. I mean, I prefer what you're saying, Carter, because I don't think that that gives Laura any kind of agency or control over her own artistic vision. Like, even if she is recreating direct graphic crime scene photos as neville will show her later in the film you know you could argue that she still has to put her touch on it right like she still has to capture that on camera she has to recreate the look and we see her being responsible (laughs) for it when she says the eye the hair from this vantage point that lens and so on well i mean do we say that like still life photography is or or paintings or anything is like plagiarism because they're just copying a thing that they're seeing i don't think so no exactly that's foolish yeah (laughs) but i love that we get to have these conversations about this movie sure yes all right so alas elaine is dead so (laughs) laura doesn't help herself when she basically tells the police hey i saw this (laughs) i had a vision (laughs) i had a vision so they're like cool wait what uh why don't you come down to the precinct to bring all the models bring your whole team we want to interview everybody question for y'all would y'all be as brazen as laura and just be like yeah y'all look i lit- i had a psychic vision this is what happened no i, I, I feel like she's pretty shaken in that moment and mm-hmm. like i think that she was not thinking oh it, it wasn't it, sorry that wasn't meant to be like wow laura's really dumb it's more so like a because here's the thing honestly <laughs> oh, like not. well because here's the thing uh, if 
I have what happened to Laura happen to me. I would want to be like, well, I have information that could theoretically help the police. However, they're going to think I'm a crazy person. So Mm -hmm. what is my that's my conundrum right now? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the fact that she asks Elaine about Second Sight tells me that she's maybe a little bit open to some of this stuff. So it's odd to me. She doesn't get particularly scared. She gets scared for when she sees the visions because she knows that it's someone who is going to be murdered. And they're often people that she's closely associated with her friends, her lovers and so on. So there's never a moment in the film where Laura goes like, oh, these visions, I'm terrified of them. She's always just kind of like, I just don't want them to happen again. Yeah, she's scared for the person that she's seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think she cares so much about maybe looking foolish or yeah, being found guilty. Yeah, because she wants to help. And I guess she, she's not a suspect. So it's like, what does she have to lose? Well, yeah, she's not a suspect until John enters the picture. Yeah, but sure. she, I mean, she says she was like, you literally think that I like committed these murders and then recreated the scenes and photographed mm-hmm. them like as the murderer like that. <laughs> That's really what you think? Is that's your what your your theory? Well, that's just what the murderer would say, Carter. Yeah, I guess <laughs> actually, so. it sounds like what Argento would do. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so this is where we start to get the red herrings. Oh wait, I'm I'm I'm, I'm sorry. Wait, really quick. That's mm-hmm. also very basic instinct, right? Which is oh. kind of funny, given that the murder weapon the in both pick. films is an ice pick. Ice pick. Yeah. <laughs> You you can't tell me the basic instinct didn't pull from this movie. A hundred percent. Yeah. So this is when the red herrings start to get introduced. So we learn that Tommy has a switchblade and to cut rope and shit. Yeah. <laughs> right, Tommy. I, I favorite line delivery in the entire film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're introduced to Detective Sal Volp, who is played by Frank Adonis and I would argue he also plays something of a red herring because he doesn't seem like a trustworthy police officer. Yeah. So his partner is <gasps> Lieutenant John Neville, Tommy Lee Jones. So, of course, True. this is when Laura realizes, oh, shit, that guy was a cop. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun, right? It plays almost like the conventions of a romantic comedy, right? Where they meet and they don't know who each other is and they yeah. accidentally insult each other and so yeah. on. So I I do feel like these scenes lend themselves to the romance that we'll get, even if that is a rewrite. Well, yeah. whether it is or not... Does this romance work for y'all? I mean, I think it's unethical for him to be. But there, <laughs> yeah, it's super, super unethical. But I understand what she's how she's feeling. I mean, yeah, because they're both hot. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it feels like it happens very quickly. I mean, we'll get to oh, it later yes. when they just fuck, like make out in the woods. But I'm just kind of like, oh, oh, we're just doing this right now. OK, mm-hmm. OK, OK. I could see a draft of this where this scene is still in here and we establish that they have a kind of romantic chemistry, but they don't act on it. Yeah. But I, th- I, w- I would say that they have like a chemistry from that very first scene at the, at the oh, sure. opening. Sure. You know, it's, it's there from the beginning. I guess for me, I'm like, bitch, we don't have time for this. Like <laughs> there's a murderer going <laughs> <Yeah>. around. <laughs> yeah. Well, he says that later when they're in the, you know, in the, yeah. in the fall leaves, he's like, I should be catching a murderer. <laughs> Mm -hmm. you're like yes yes you should yes but also everyone knows that death and and murder is an aphrodisiac that's literally what this movie is suggesting sex and death are intertwined until it's real until it's real (laughs) so yes this is when we learn that she has been inadvertently recreating real life crime scene photos and she explains that she started seeing images of murder and violence about two years ago and the images would just come to her 
this isn't an issue for me, but I've seen some people complain about this, that we don't get an explanation as to why these psychic visions started happening all of a sudden. But oh, I'm like, fuck, who, who cares? cares? <laughs> yeah, I don't care. <laughs> That's the kind of thing where I'm like, yes, we could always get more insight yeah. into the hows and whys, but I don't know that it's ever really satisfying. Like, we just no. need to know what's happening. Yeah. Because she's fucking Laura Mars. Right. <laughs> Because she's stressed because her new book is coming out. Who the fuck cares? Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, shout out to Donald because he does do a great Baba Walters impersonation <laughs> and a less good Lloyd Bridges. <laughs> okay, so uh, Neville takes Laura to Elaine's apartment. I'm not exactly sure why, because it is maybe an active crime scene but yeah well okay okay but here's the thing though because even showing I, I get why they show her photos of unsolved murders but i'm also kind of like mm, mm -hmm. that's still evidence that you have sealed and so yeah now let's take you to the murder scene <laughs> 70s cops are we just meant to believe they're not great sure <laughs> there weren't any there weren't any ethics violations in place Clearly not. I, I will say I am really impressed with Laura's ability to say that, oh, that's Michael's clothes that I bought him. Like, right? I could not tell you any of my husband's clothes. And I sure as shit will be able to say if I ever bought him clothes because I have not. <laughs> oh, I see. I, I, to I totally could. I could, ah! I, could yeah. I could totally tell you exactly what sweater I brought my boyfriend. Like, what? 100%. Because mm. ah! you know that they weren't cheap. They probably were, you know, and it was probably like... I fancy shit they cost a lot designer. of money and it was her money mm -hmm. and yeah yeah I no i i agree because it's not like oh that's the gap sweater i bought off the rack that looks like a million other things it's like oh that would have been a name yeah i guess it's, it's just a tan suit jacket that he shows her and i'm like okay no <laughs> trace, this is trace not trace, trace. i know <laughs> carter's like oh my god shut up <laughs> Trace is like, they're just clothes. They're just photos. What's the big deal? Yeah. <laughs> no, she definitely, I, I, I didn't bump on that at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, we do learn, or Laura learns maybe in this moment. Who can say? She doesn't have a huge reaction, but she does immediately identify, yes, this is from Michael. I guess he was staying here, but he's definitely not a murderer. She wants to reassure John that that is the case. So he ends up taking her home. He gives her his number. I'm assuming it's like a private number. Again, very flirty, kind of sexy. Yeah. And then she goes upstairs and boom, there's Michael. He's been waiting for her because he still has a key. And he still loves her and he's trying to rape her again. Oh, yeah. Boy. <laughs> I don't know. My ex is just waiting for me in my dark apartment. I'm going to pepper spray that motherfucker. After his, his like current girlfriend was just murdered. Like, Dude, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. I do love this line where, you know, he says that why would he kill Elaine? She was the best meal ticket. And then Laura immediately retorts, second, second best. Second best. Ah, first. the best. <laughs> <laughs> like she knows... This, to me, is actually very authentic. This idea of yeah. you know when an ex is shit, and yet you still love them, and you kind of can't help but feel either generous or even still sexually attracted to them, because it never fully goes away. Yeah. Unless they murder someone, or they die. Wow. <laughs> but I think, you know, it, it made me question, like, what their relationship was like, and how, how good it was when it was good, mm -hmm. you know? Because it had to have been pretty good. It almost just seems like they're very, uh, I don't want to say, 
I don't want to say open. I don't think they had open relationship, but they're very much just like, yeah, it's a, it's very casual. It's very casual, it seems like, despite being passionate as well. Well, I wonder, too, if I got the impression that they were relatively young, like they haven't been together in a little while. But I mean, I know I said that Faye Dunaway is a mature final girl earlier <laughs> in this. But at the time of this filming, I mean, it's like mature as in she's not a teenager. But I very much think that the character is supposed to be, what do you two think, like early 30s? Uh, she would have been about 36 when they filmed yeah. this. Okay. And that seems about right. I mean, that that, that tracks with, with her level of, you know, mm-hmm. the, the work that she's doing. I will say, though, and this is not an ageist thing, but it's like, I feel like people like back then just looked older than they were all the time. It's called the smoking. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It really does. Like, it, it fucks up your face. Did it fuck up my face? I mean, I'll tell you off mic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean you haven't been smoking for like decades at this point. Maybe you have. I don't know. Well, no, I only smoked regularly for three years, and that was when I was in college. But that was young enough to work and really get you. Mm-hmm. You're probably yeah. fine. I don't know. <laughs> if I get lung cancer, I'll let you know. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm just talking about your face. I'm not talking okay. about the rest of your body. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. I guess at this point, because we've been introduced to a couple of, I'm going to say, somewhat pathetic male characters in this film, I wanted to bring Fisher and Landy back in, because one of the readings that they have of the film is that there's a lot of portraits of men who are revealed to be weak and impotent, and their weakness seems traceable to fantasies of female dominance. So this is the kind of alternative point of view where they're saying there's some interesting criticisms about, oh, well all the men in this movie kind of suck and they blame women for being strong. And that's where you get the kind of criticisms of misogyny. Like, Oh, well, Laura sucks because she's actually showing us that we suck. But I don't think Tommy or Donald fall into that category. Okay. So this is how they state it. (laughs) This is 1982 here, folks. Okay. Donald, (laughs) a homosexual is a victim of the killer's assault Tommy is an ex-criminal and a voyeur. Uh, a gratuitous yeah. image of a male dwarf appears early in the film. I literally have no idea why that's in there. Well, I don't. I, I don't know why that's in there, or why literally in the film this character is in there. <laughs> just for just for visual flair, I think so. It it felt a little icky to me on this rewatch. I was just like, oh, are yeah. we bringing in a little person? To kind of show like, oh, Laura will surround herself with all sorts of people. And it's just like, no, those are real people. Like, that's a real man right there. Hmm. Since we're talking about Donald and Tommy, can we just for a second, like, do you guys have any idea like what the agreement that they have? Like how Tommy got this job and Hmm. what Donald like sort of is hanging over him? Like, my God, Carter, are you reading a sexual insinuation here? I mean, to me, Kinda. that whole scene when he when Tommy reveals that he was in prison and like there's the fight hat, like I think that there's something going on there. Where is that scene in this movie? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I read it so much more G-rated. It's like Donald saying, "I know of your of your past, and you get to keep your job, but you can't bring this to Laura's attention because it's too much for her right now." But it, but, but why did he get the job in the first place? well i was gonna say i don't even think laura would have really been bothered by it no. ba- uh, or maybe it's because she knows tommy already but she doesn't care very much but i i 
I'm inclined to side with you, Carter. I kind of am like, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, he maybe got a little glory hole action out of that. I think Tommy is hot and, and Donald was, you know, right opportunistic and got him a job when he needed one, when he was down on his luck and needed the hand up. Well, that's mm-hmm. the thing, right? But that, that also enters into some interesting territory, though, because then it, it, let's say that is the case. Then it's very much like a, well, I mean, no one else is going to hire you with your record. So uh, what are you willing to do to prove that you want this job? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we've seen that showbiz story before. Yes, <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the reality is, is these male characters aren't really super important. Like they're there to be potential killers. Right. I yeah. mean, we've got the police are presented as unsympathetic, lecherous and trigger happy. The murderer himself is a policeman. Michael is a total failure, an exploiter of women. And he has this impetus and rage against women because he blames Laura's career for his writer's block. So I guess when you when you kind of synthesize, oh, men are just kind of impotent, shitty or bad in this movie. So it it would make sense. I mean, I think Donald is the best of them all. And now yeah. you poisoned him for me, Carter. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I do kind of appreciate the fact that I mean, like, right, do we want to call this a slasher film? I would say so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So on that level, you know, we have, I think it's six victims, the first three of which are women. But then mm-hmm. we are solely focusing on men in the latter half of this film. Although right. I guess you could argue because it's neville who's the killer that he's doing it out of like jealousy getting all the men out of laura's life because by this point they had like started their romantic relationship yeah it's a weirdly sexualized rationale obviously we'll go into the mommy issues of it all because this film is nothing if not freudian and i think it's kind of fascinating that it starts off by yeah like we're killing women in a very stereotypical slasher sense like women who are sexy and provocative or women who are threatening right like they're powerful and then we switch it and it's like okay let's get rid of all the men that the girl i like is close to Mm. Mm. so yes this is when we get the scene between tommy and donald tommy comes clean laura doesn't care we go to this waterfront studio and this is my favorite sequence of the film it's ludicrous i don't know that it makes any sense at all but I love the idea of Laura seeing herself when her eyesight gets hijacked. So she watches herself running as yeah. she's running. Amazing. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. But it's, again, this will tie in towards the end of the film, but it's a thing where I'm like, wait, so, <laughs> like, can you imagine trying to run and navigate direction while you're actually seeing a completely different POV of yourself no, running? Absolutely not. It's no. so silly. <laughs> I think she would just immediately run into a wall. <laughs> well, she's in that big open studio space in that big this open warehouse, so she's got nothing to bump into. Yeah. You know what? This is why she doesn't have any furniture anywhere. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I stubbed my toe that one time, and then I keep getting my vision hijacked by a killer. So I'm just going to keep all the debris and all the furniture Out away from me. <laughs> Okay, so Donald ends up rescuing her. I think this is meant to be a red herring, like, oh, he's just right there. What was he doing there? Maybe yeah. he's the killer. Is he the killer? I never for one moment believe it's Donald. I didn't. I never thought it was Donald. No. But yeah. I mean, maybe that's just the, the queer in all of us where we're like, ah, why would he kill her? It makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, she's so fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to stand in her aura and bathe in the light. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. 
So he is nothing if not professional slash money driven, though, because he says, well, you know what you should do? I know you were just about attacked and maybe killed. You should go back to work. Let's set up a photo shoot for you right here and now. (laughs) But when she tries to start taking pictures of this businessman being shot in the fountain, she can't get the images of violence out of her head. So we kill the shoot. But this is really fun. I, I love this sequence so much. Like, so again, good. With that disco track, it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. Oh, this is I'm in the mood right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's I mean, the best like I've done shoots like that where the shoot was like a party scene. And so we had, you know, 15, 20 models in evening gowns with cocktails like in and out of the pool. And like it is as fun as this makes it look it seems yeah and there's and there's an you know amazing music playing and it's long hours and you got to keep everyone's energy up and like right it really like at its best it 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 really can be that fun so would you say this this scene is a pretty authentic portrayal of of, of, a typical photo shoot i mean you know there aren't so many models just topless probably right right but you know that that like you know the hair and makeup with everyone in there and they're all chatting and talking and yeah i mean i felt like it was you know a stylized version for sure mm-hmm. but um not it was pretty that authentic. far off. not that far off and yeah. the guy who you know do you guys remember the guy who played the hairdresser who had that like dark shag mm-hmm. anyway it's it, it's john sahag who like was a a really famous hairdresser at the at the time in the 70s uh, oh shit okay. yeah so they were they were pulling in like real fashion people and i think that's part of why it you know all feels so real um, I'm sorry, I'm going to add on to this, though. Um, yes, Mr. John Sahag, um, according to his Wikipedia, best known for the haircut he gave Demi Moore in yeah, Ghost. Ghost, yeah. <laughs> oh, whoa. Yeah. That is huge. He's the one that sort of really popularized the whole, like, dry cut. Like, instead yeah. of getting, you know, cutting it dry so you can see what it looks like. And there's, like, a mm. whole shag sort of thing that he pioneered in the 70s. Hmm. Oh shit! He also did Gwyneth Paltrow's hair in Sliding Doors. Yeah, I'm sorry, both of cut. her hairs. Yeah, <laughs> that is such a risky fucking cut. Oof. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is the point where Laura tries to recreate what the experience of having her vision hijacked is like for John. So she has him face away from a camcorder and look at a TV monitor and. It's a very interesting way to visually represent it for another character. But also, we learn that John doesn't like seeing himself. Okay. Oh, okay. You know what? Thank you for saying that before I jumped in on this. Because I was going to be like, this is the (laughs) stupidest fucking thing I've ever seen. Like, the the concept of, hey, I can see what the killer sees and I can't see my own vision is a simple enough concept. We don't need to go through this whole fucking charade. (laughs) But your reasoning makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) i like it because i think in the world of the film if you say oh i see what the killer sees he's going to be like oh like your photographs but when she's trying to communicate how all-encompassing like how she really cannot see things through her own point of view this is a good way to encapsulate that and it's also this like moment when like you know he's super playful and you know and she's like and he's holding his hand up like paparazzi style like there's a you know it's kind of like this moment of lightness between them which is Mm -hmm. the beginning of their love story right (laughs) i was gonna say their love story (laughs) began with their first meeting their meet (laughs) (laughs) 
I would say it also does one other thing. So I'm going to bring Fisher and Landy back in. Of course um, you are. Of course I am. I said extensive, <laughs> extensive reference. Fisher and Landy. Fisher and Landy. They're basically the other people hosting this podcast tonight. So they say the playing with onstage, backstage, and offstage settings in the sequences involving costuming, makeup, directing, and photographing, as well as in the casual scenes at home, act to suppress differences between performance and life to fuse media spectacle and private experience. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the relationship between gender and her photography. But when we were thinking about voyeurism, there is that kind of performativity to it, right? Like we as an audience are watching a slasher or a giallo and Laura is also watching a slasher and giallo, but also she's making up reality through her photographs. And here she's confusing real life with simulated imagery through the camcorder and the TV. Hmm. Lots of layers. Layers. It's like, um, like you know, when you have a mirror against a mirror, it's like an infinite thing. That's what this exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah. Because this movie is obsessed with how we see things and what is real as a result. Mm-hmm. Well, this makes Laura very frustrated because she goes to develop some photos very angrily. <laughs> yeah. So, so John is interviewing the models, which I do think is significant because right after he interviews Lulu and Michelle at the precinct, we then watch them get murdered at home. And of course, so does Laura as a result. Lulu! Like, she's not even near where they are. <laughs> it's like a frustrated scream, like a primal thing, like, stop killing my friends. <laughs> I will say, though, um, and this should have been my thing from earlier. This is Lulu and Michelle. We're not home, so go to hell. But if you're not a hoardy creep, then leave a message at the beep. There you go. (laughs) It's 100% one of those messages where if you had to call up more than once, you would hate these girls. Please just get a shorter fucking message. I don't want to have to keep listening to this. Models, am I right? (laughs) well i did want to say one of the other things and i think it's a reason why i've come to enjoy this film so much is because a lot of this feels evocative of the things that we're seeing in knife plus heart oh yeah i could see that i mean it's all about well not me not making movies but it's about like this this kind of similar industry Mm -hmm. yeah like creating creating stories and sort of a a female mastermind behind Mm -hmm. you know behind the scenes creating creating what we're seeing Well, and don't forget that in that film, the killer's explanation is that she is literally recreating images from his life. Right, right, right. So I don't know if if Jan Gonzalez took any inspiration from this, but if not, I just I mean, I think there's something to be said about movies that present women creatives in photography and video and that kind of stuff. And it's like especially when we infuse that with sexuality and danger, we tend to get kind of like-minded texts like this. They they work well together. Well, I think it's also because the male gaze is always, always the default. Like we always assume it's the male gaze because men are typically at a certain, in the time when this was made and when Knife Plus Heart takes place, mm-hmm. it, was a, it wasn't, has been a male-dominated industry. So it's like we're flipping it on to the female. Right. Even though I would argue that there is tons of queerness in this, right? Like not just with the character of Donald, as we said, you know, probably the hair and makeup people. And I'm going to present the argument that Lulu and Michelle are queer coded. Oh, I don't I I just assumed that they were girlfriends. 
right? I didn't even think about that. Like, I, I didn't think it was coding anything. I just thought they were, like, girlfriends. I don't know. I, I guess I, maybe it's my, like, my slash our modern mindset of, like, sexual fluidity. But it's a thing where I'm like, yeah, sure. Peep friends, fucking whatever. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> there they are. <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah, I guess the other reason that I definitely see them as such is because if I do draw comparisons to Tenebrae, this Lulu and Michelle set piece reminds me of the lesbian models in Tenebrae who get murdered on the kind of like upstairs downstairs of their mm, unit. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So we don't do a ton of grieving in this movie. Like Elaine and Doris just kind of pass by the wayside and we have to move on with our lives. But when it comes to Lulu and Michelle, we need a whole big ass funeral sequence. <laughs> <laughs> You know why? Because they were hot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do love the mausoleum, though. It's a very pretty set piece. It, re- it reminds me of Phantasm. Right. Well, yes, totally. I think if you're watching the movie for the first time, this is the part where you will notice, oh, the pacing feels a little bit slower. So I would argue this is the transition into the back half of the film where the romance kicks in. The murders slow down a little bit. Our red herrings disappear for longer stretches of time. It sometimes feels like a police procedural. So I think this is the shift into that other part. There's well, no more we, sexy photo shoots. Right. Well, no, because well, yeah, we'll remove because the next scene is when we get this whole like wood makeout session. Like I, need, I want to get you out of here. Let's get. Do we have to go home? Do we have to go okay. back to the city right now? Can we just fuck in the woods? My, my second favorite line delivery in this movie. So basically they're in the woods and Laura's like, what's going on? And Tommy Lee Jones goes, I don't know. <laughs> and it's not i don't know it's i don't know <laughs> like he oh. couldn't be bothered to care <laughs> because he doesn't i mean the reality is is that the murders are not going to happen while he's with laura because he's the one committing the murders. so he's like don't worry we've got plenty of time i mean i have questions about how much the good half of tommy lee jones's personality knows about the mm-hmm. murders because it's not entirely made clear by the end of the film <laughs> oh boy yeah we'll we'll get to the potential did-ness of it all again mm-hmm. <laughs> so after they fuck in the morning neville ends up giving her a gun and this is the second time that we've seen someone try to give laura a gun so the first one is the prop gun at the ah, ah, yeah, hey, hey. yeah um, the <laughs> and she refuses it she like does not handle she guns. give it to lulu give it to lulu yeah, yeah. Whereas here, she kind of tentatively takes it, but we'll later find out that she just hides it in her underwear drawer. But Neville does tellingly say that if she does use it, she would be doing the killer a favor. A favor, yeah. So this is a cry for help. Sure. On a rewatch, it makes sense. But you're saying like, okay. Yeah. (laughs) The first time watch, you think, "Mm, okay, what does that mean? I've seen, you know, that was rewritten to fit with the new ending. (laughs) Yes, maybe that. Okay, you know what, though? Even though we don't have a photo shoot, we do have a birthday party. So it's time to go to Donald's house. He is celebrating a birthday. Trace, you said you wanted to go to an art gallery opening like the one in the beginning of the film. Uh I wouldn't mind going to Donald's birthday party because it definitely seems piano bar vibes uh yeah and probably mounds of cocaine everywhere Ever, yeah like just out of frame <laughs> just just out, just out of frame <laughs> yeah every, every single frame. <laughs> my favorite character detail here is when 
shit is kind of kicking off and people are maybe having to leave and there's confusion and donald just tells the piano player don't stop don't stop playing (laughs) (laughs) a true gay so gay yeah so his outfit with those with those floppy like white uh sleeves Yes. Ooh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, we're not spending enough time talking about Donald's fashion in this movie. <laughs> it is great. <laughs> yeah, this outfit I think is his best one, which is a little sad that he has to take it off so that he can put on Laura's fabulous outfit with this great hat. But it does disguise his identity when he needs to leave to fool the police. Yeah. This is oddly not a set piece for me. Like it's too abbreviated and i don't know if it's just that the film is trying to pick the pace back up but the fact that there's very little tension you know he walks down the street he gets stopped by the cop it's great when he claps back at this guy and then he just gets murdered in this elevator into the the killer's pov as he's walking back and i think that like it kind of comes as a surprise that shift like Mm. because it kind of lulls you into into sort of feeling like okay this is not like this is not a build-up to any any scary scene and then all of a sudden like you know there's like that almost comedic moment when he trips on the heels which transitions into oh this is the killer's pov right yeah he's actually in danger shit shit shit. i guess i I get what you're saying carter and i do agree but at the same time both donald's death michael's death and do we even see tommy's death does it happen off screen he gets shot in the doorway okay all, all of these, like, the, it just seems so fast and quick. Like, I, so I get what you're saying, Joe. It's, it's not a set piece. None of these deaths are where, in fact, all of the female deaths have been mm-hmm. what I would call set pieces. Yeah. Yes. And, of course, if you've done any studying, like, in terms of academic discourse on the way that men and women's deaths are presented in slasher films, this is absolutely typical like we tend to focus on women being fearful in agony the chase sequences are much longer the deaths are much more violent and men have a tendency to just get murdered well this is also the first death where like we don't first move into it through laura experiencing it like like we, we we see it from the killer's point of view before laura is aware of what's happening Mm-hmm. But I think that's why I liked it because I, it took me by surprise because it okay. presented it as a, in a way that was like, oh, like now we don't have to be with Laura and have her like paralyzed by, you know, a vision to. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I like that. Yeah, because in, in some ways what's happening with Laura is almost secondary. Like it's obviously very exciting when Faye Dunaway is screaming for Donald once again and she's ah! barely surviving this car crash. <laughs> but um yeah, no, I, I like that rationale, Carter. So she, and she takes Donald's car. She dresses up as Donald and takes his car, which is a pacer. Which, mm-hmm. fun fact, that was my first car. That, like, glass <gasps> oh, bubble. Really? Of, my grandmother had one, and she gave it to me. And it sat in my driveway, like, in my house for, like, two years while I kept failing my driver's license test. Um, <laughs> and, but, like, watching it, I was like, oh, you know, he drives a pacer. That makes sense. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Is it a known homosexual and or grandmother vehicle? I I wouldn't go that far. I don't know. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's a cute looking car for sure. Bubble of a round bubble of glass. (laughs) So what you're saying is it's a wonder that she survived the car crash. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay. 
So unfortunately, Donald is dead, but it may have given us a key piece of evidence to crack the case. So Lieutenant Sal and Neville find a card on Donald's body. They trace it back to Tommy, who, in case you have forgotten, is still Brad Dourif. We just haven't referenced him in a very long time because he hasn't been in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. So they set up a very badly coordinated sting operation where they wait for him in his house, but then he calls because he saw them go in and he doesn't want to talk to both of them. He just wants to talk to Neville. So Sal has to leave, but he's really not very far away. And then like right outside the door. Yeah. (laughs) And then shockingly enough, it doesn't go well because Tommy is worried that they're going to put in in an institution. So he makes a break for it. And he just ends up getting shot. To me, this is very, like, French connection-y. Like, this feels more like a Dirty Harry movie all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does feel like a shift in genre, right? Like, now we're in a cop movie, which I know there have been cops in this movie before, uh, before this Gone. scene. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, this is just, okay, we're kind of going through, like, uh, the thrillery cop motions here. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little seedier too, right? Like when Laura isn't around to glitz and glamour up the screen and like Donald's not here with his fantastic wardrobe, we're left with these seedy, shitty cops. And obviously we said Brad Dourif is very hot, but you know, this is, yeah, this is a police procedural for the moment. I feel so bad for Tommy though. Like he really got the raw end of the deal this entire fucking affair. Oh my God. It's like, he was charged with a crime. He did his time. He's a contributing member of society, and he dies because of it. And he, and he still had to give Donald sexual favors. Yes! Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he liked it. We don't know. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, okay, I'm not defending this action if that's what Donald did. But all I'm saying is, if someone was like, give me a blowjob and I'll give you what you want, I might do it. I mean, it depends on the power hierarchy, right? <laughs> like, if Tommy's like, I literally don't have anything else, I would be sleeping on the streets, or I would have to go back to a life of crime or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, so Tommy is dead. Basically, we're, we're starting to run out of red herrings, so we need to bring Michael back into the proceedings. And this is when the film basically says, oh, fuck it. We're, we're nearly at the climax. So John comes into Laura's building. Michael is in the elevator. And then shockingly enough, Laura has a vision of someone getting murdered. The difference is, is that she can't identify who exactly it is. But if you're paying attention at all, it's like, well, who was in the elevator with Michael? Yeah, this this I don't want to say didn't work for me, but I was very much like. Oh, this it's all happening very fast. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think that the film gives the audience enough time to process what's happening here. And honestly, the way Michael is dispatched, I mean, I, I get it. He's not really a character in this movie because mm-hmm. when's the last time we saw him? But at yeah. the same time, it's kind of like, oh, OK. Well, it doesn't it doesn't land the way it could. And as a result, it's like, well, why did you even bring Michael back? Except for the fact that we needed to have one more death. Laura lose her vision. Yeah. And somebody else die. But you could have just as easily had, oh, the killer is coming up towards her apartment. And then she locks the door and then John breaks in. I will say him smashing through the balcony glass. Yeah. Amazing. And this whole sequence, like her seeing through his eyes as he walks down her hallway to oh, her great. door and she runs across it like that is mm-hmm. gold it's so good it's great i 
I would like to see not even a remake of this, but a modern version that uses something like this, because, yeah, I think it's a really, really great idea. I don't think I, I, I think it's fine here. Uh, I would love to see a modern sensibility like of this scene, but. I think Trace, really cool. didn't you say that there's like a film from 1990 that uses oh. <laughs> the same narrative conceit? So, okay, I have never seen this, but while I was watching this, my husband walked in and I was kind of telling him like what the movie was about. And he goes, oh, Ali Sheedy was in a movie called Fear in 1990 that literally rips off this entire movie, complete with, <laughs> oh, she can see the killer's vision. And it's even this like done stylistically in the exact same way, where it's like blurred outlines of the screen. Oh... So uh, this movie, by the way, also stars Lauren Hutton from Someone's Watching Me. Oh, okay. And it was meant to go to theaters, but it was a Showtime original film in 1990. <laughs> Oops. Hmm. <laughs> but nevertheless, um, yeah, I think this is really fun. But then it leads into the killer reveal. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So John basically climbs in and we should note immediately He's talking differently. So he's speaking about himself differently. You know, he's talking from the point of view of the killer, but not as John Neville. He does explain that he is the son of a sex worker and he was frequently left alone for up to three to four days by himself. And eventually his mother was killed when her throat was slashed. And this... He's presenting it all as Tommy's story. And and she's very much like, that's not Tommy's story. Like, what are you talking about? That's not Tommy's like, story. Like, bitch, catch on faster. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and he's like, oh, like, was it his father or was it a John? Who can say? And it's like, okay, we get it. This is your story, dude. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think this all works because it's such a big information dump in such a short amount of time. And mm-hmm. I don't know where we could have put any of this beforehand because, again, we're building up to the twist reveal of who the killer is. But it just feels so, like, clumsily handled. Yeah, it just feels yeah. shoehorned in. I thought, you know, it's a it's a third act exposition dump. Yeah. But not just that, like... I don't know. I look at this and sure, this is 1978. Yeah. But Trace, we just covered Psycho a couple of weeks ago. And this feels very much like I was fucked up by mommy as a child. And now I become a serial killer. And you know what? Great. Yeah. Because we said like in that film, you know, a big critique is, oh, well, do we need this psychiatrist scene explaining the whole fucking thing? Mm-hmm. I would argue it makes more sense in that in that movie because it's psychiatrist doing it. <laughs> but i don't know i i I, yeah it's this is fine i I, outside of how again shoehorned it feels uh as carter said it also i don't think it satisfies Hmm. because it doesn't answer the question of, of why her like why is she seeing his visions like what is it about the i mean i guess you know eventually they meet and they fall in love and they have that connection which would make sense but if all of this started you know before they knew each other. Mm-hmm. Ah, wait, 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 wait. But here's the thing. Are we meant to believe, or are we just taking it as fact, that the, the unsolved crime scene photos that he showed her were also his crimes? Maybe she just I has mean, the ability to channel these killers across the board? I don't know. Yeah, she's, she's, she's medium. Yeah. She, she's Patricia Arquette medium. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I've always taken it as... When he started killing, a.k.a. some of those unsolved crimes that he shows her pictures of leading up to the crime spree that we've seen throughout the film, 
she starts getting vision so they're sort of drawn together and then when he realizes who she is or what she looks like because at one point he tellingly says her as in laura mars's hair looks dry, just like his mother's yeah so it's like he is projecting his mommy issues onto laura mars and Ooh. you know it's weirdly going both ways so that's why they have this connection well but oh okay wait okay so car I, I get what you're saying so maybe though because uh, it doesn't really make sense with what i'm trying to say because doris gets killed before the art show you mm-hmm. could argue that him being at the art show is like, oh shit, these are my murders, which then draws him into, like, that, that puts Lore in his crosshairs. Mm-hmm. But then it's also this whole double, like, sort of identity, like, multiple personality thing where... Yeah. yeah, because this isn't John, we have to remember, right? He's speaking as though he's someone else. Like, you know, like, like this body, like, you got me to thank for that. Like, you know, he would, he'd be, what, 98 pounds if, if it was up mm-hmm. to him. Like, so I wonder how aware they are of each other. And if there are any scenes earlier on in the film when it has been the killer, or if it's all right. been I, soft and lovely Tommy Lee Jones. I rewatched it today because I was like, you know what, I'm just going to put it over before we do this recording just to see if I notice anything. It, You know, you, you can go like watch a Scream film and be like, okay, who's the killer in which scene, whatever. It's kind of fun, it's stupid, whatever. I truly can't tell. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know if it's because of Tommy Lee. Because you would think as an actor, if you know this going in, you might try to imbue different characteristics of your performance at different times. Right. Or to give but options, that, you know. Well, but it's also kind of hard to do because you don't want to give it away, right? Yeah. So I get the issue there, but I'm also kind of like, yeah, I, I have no fucking clue. It Has it always been John when he's mm-hmm. with Laura? Or has he ever dipped into the other psychotic serial killer persona? I, I don't know. Nevertheless, the, the the fact that when he's about to kill her and we have we're, she has a vision mm-hmm. and I'm like, OK, wait, 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 you're now trying to survive this killer who's coming at you with an ice pick while seeing yourself through his eyes. That's really difficult. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, and that's why she ends up having to resort to, quote unquote, her feminine wiles. Right. She embraces him and says that she loves him because she's trying you. to. She's trying to remove the serial killer identity so that she can hopefully reason with John Neville again. And it, it, works, it works, right? I mean, <laughs> we, we get this payoff where he sees himself and we know that he hates to see himself. And I think in part that's also meant to refer to her photography. Like he sees himself in her photography, even though he's not literally captured. He sees his work and he doesn't like it or he's attracted to it or he's turned on by it whatever but he ends up yeah seeing himself in this mirror he stabs himself in the eye with the ice pick not literally the mirror version of himself again this movie loves some freudian bullshit (laughs) but then yeah you know seemingly this this is him murdering the dark part of himself that has been committing these murders but he doesn't trust that it's the end so he ends up or less murdering himself he makes her shoot him but he guides her to do it and then the movie ends with her 911 call and the final line of the film this is laura mars <laughs> oh i'm sorry i'm laura mars <laughs> why End do you say movie. it that way <laughs> i am laura mars i'm laura mars <laughs> i mean at least they didn't make her say something about eyes right like I'm Laura Mars, and I've seen the killer. 
This is the eyes of Laura Mars. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no da. <laughs> this is eyes of Laura Mars. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do we think there's no the in the title? I don't know, because even her book is called The Eyes of Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, um, it seems like they knew that this ending was kind of a clusterfuck because this movie just ends. Right. But well, I, I like where want. it ends. Like, how much more do you need after that? Like, I, I think ending on her saying that, I, I thought that was kind of a great place to end it. Like, I don't, I like I don't want any aftermath. I don't want any, like, anymore. <laughs> you don't want to know if she goes back to doing photography? Like, presumably she does. <laughs> right? She's got to pay for the rent on that amazing apartment. You know, but... everyone in her work life is dead, but she yeah. finds a way to, to pull it all together. Okay, you know what? Eyes of Laura Mars 2 european adventure yes paris and milan yeah she's like you know what i'm gonna go to where it all began and then she becomes a famous pornography director just european adventure (laughs) she makes an emmanuel softcore film except it's european as in like penis because funnily enough cinematographer uh victor j kemper of this film also shot national lampoon's vacation and he never got to shoot european vacation so it, it might be on his bucket list if there he's alive it could still happen faye dunaway is still alive we could get a legacy sequel girl faye dunaway is 85 i don't know if she's gonna be doing anything for much longer i mean i saw her picture on imdb she looks great if you can take pictures from a wheelchair if you need to if they're paying <laughs> there we go <laughs> You know what? Bring John Carpenter back because he is literally directing movies from his couch. So he could direct a European version with an 85-year-old Laura Fade Mars. Away. Totally. Yeah. I'm there for it. Do it. Well, all right. Trace <laughs> <laughs> is like, fuck this shit. What are we doing? <laughs> no, no, no. That, everyone, that is the eyes. Oh, God damn it. That is ah. eyes. <laughs> Laura Mars. Fuck. <sighs> okay, Carter, as the guest of honor, please, wh- final thoughts on this film. I think that it is a fucking masterpiece of style and mm-hmm. and fantasy and fashion and like I'm here for it a hundred percent. Like I don't mind plot holes. I don't mind any of the problems that it might have. Mm-hmm. If you give me like flaming car photo shoots in <laughs> Columbus circle and glamorous Absolutely. fade down away running down cobblestone streets and high heels. Like that's I'm there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe style over substance, but I think that that's, you know, I think that there's enough substance to warrant the, uh, the style. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I'm mid on this film. I, I think it's. I think there's a really good idea here. I just honestly, it's mostly the pacing issues for me. I, I can take plot holes. I can take stupid plot contrivances because whatever movies a movie. I just, I do think there are lulls in this film uh, where I, I don't, I don't find it particularly as captivating as, uh, as I should. Right. Yeah, and and honestly, I can't fault you for that because I feel them too. But I'm just so much more with Carter, where I'm yeah. like the the style and the flair of this movie. I find I don't know. There's something so exciting and vibrant about a lot of this that I'm willing to forgive a lot of that. Because anytime mm-hmm. the the story the plot slows down, like I'm just happy to like look at what's on her bedside okay. table, or yeah. like mm-hmm. look at what she has pinned up on her inspiration board, or like what the cars parked on this. Like all of it is just so exciting and fascinating. Like it's mm-hmm. that's enough for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But honestly, double bill this movie with this in the fan if you want to just get like too much New York extravaganza. Or or cruising. Yeah. Actually better. (laughs) I I think out of those three, I like cruising the most. Although I do think I, I, if I remember correctly, because I've only seen the fan once too, I, I like the fan more than this as well. Mm. but th- there's also a lot more like problematic queerness in that film <laughs> so maybe there's oh. more for me to like grapple onto for sure yes we will cover it one day yeah but yeah okay well uh before we announce what we're covering next week um carter um i think you have a movie coming out soon i do yes oh my god tell us about it <laughs> it's called the passenger and it is a- another film that i'm did with blumhouse and it's a um coming-of-age hostage road trip thriller with Kyle Gallner and Johnny Birchtold. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, it's a little less, like, straight-up genre than mm-hmm. stuff that I've done in the past, but kind of has this, like, weird, fucked-up relationship at the center of it, which was really fun to play with. And, I mean, Kyle Gallner and Johnny Birchtold, like... Come on. like They're really dynamic together, too. Oh, I was going to say, jo- Joe, you've seen it. I-, I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but Joe, you've seen it. So tell Carter what you thought. <laughs> yeah, t- yeah, tell me what you <laughs> thought. Don't hold, thought don't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> no, Carter knows. Uh, no, I I quite like this. You're right. It Don't go into it expecting it to be like a straight up horror film. I consider this like a dark psychological thriller of like a really fucked up couple of guys and it goes to some really exciting and dark and disturbing places and yeah i i just found it really like low-key fascinating yeah those dark and disturbing places are the best i mean Mm -hmm. that's the sweet spot or at least my sweet spot where i like to where i like to live but also like when you shoot action because certain parts of this film are just kind of like emotional and driven by conversation and stuff. When you do get those violence set pieces, they, I think hit even harder. Yeah. Up. It's like a payoff to like, like the, the waiting. Yeah. Good. I mean, that, that was very much by design. Like you're sort of lulled into these kind of talky, intimate scenes between these two guys. Mm-hmm. And then violence erupts when you sort of least expect it. That was, that was fun to play with. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited to watch it. Uh, but Carter, uh, let everyone know also, where, where can they find you on social media or to follow your work? Um, the best place is to find me on alltheadboys.com. That is sort of my online home, I guess. You can email me there. You can follow my work there. You can see what I'm up to. You can sign up for my Dirty Little Fridays. I was going to say, sign up for Dirty Little Fridays to get um, a hint of dick in your email every week. <laughs> Sometimes not even a hint. Sometimes like just full on dick. <laughs> It depends. It'll all, it'll always be there on Friday, though. You just have to like sign up to see what what it'll be. I actually have a question for you, Carter. So, like, when it comes to the amount of nudity shown, is that like a do you walk into the shoot with a concept of this is what I want to do, or is it more collaborative with your with your uh, model? It just depends. It, it totally depends on what their comfort levels are and what they mm-hmm. you know what they're down for. I mean, usually specifically for all the dead boys shoots, I like to try to make sure that people are comfortable with. Right nudity and 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 i'm not asking anyone to to do anything that they're not comfortable with and you know right. in, in this day and age of only fans like everybody is comfortable with a whole lot more than you might think <laughs> right but okay follow-up question how often do you look at the layouts the layout oh my god 
Well, you know, like the Dirty Little Fridays thing, like all if I mean, you know, the the main picture every week is a vertical picture. And I basically started this whole newsletter because I like my All the Dead Boys website, I had set it up with a template that only supported horizontal images, complete oversight. And so I wound up with all these amazing sort of vertical sort of pinup poster images. And I was like, what am I like? What do I do? With what do these? I do with these? And I was like, I have enough to fuel a newsletter for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so i did That's i did awesome. have the layouts in mind a little bit <laughs> bert would be pleased Yes. Oh my God. Oh, that's awesome. Well, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers. And tune in once a month to hear about our most anticipated horror films for that month. Uh, if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. And if you have a moment and you love us, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or spotify or if you don't want to take the time to like write things uh give us money and go to <laughs> patreon.com slash horrorqueers we are now in august finally we are out of insidious and bird box month <laughs> yay not that we didn't love it it's just that was a lot of bird box and a lot of insidious i was tired of saying it all the time oh, fair, 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 fair. <laughs> so if you subscribe today in addition to 252 hours of past patreon episodes you will get a discussion of horror tropes that gotta go as well as episodes on meg to the trench a24's talk to me and the last voyage of the demeter and to tie in with that last one our audio commentary for the month will be on brom stoker's dracula the coppola one mm, nice. oh my god <laughs> so we've actually already recorded that commentary and joe got really frustrated with me because i kept saying francis ford coppola's bram stoker's dracula <laughs> well isn't that like the official title <laughs> well the official title was bram stoker's dracula because coppola's like well if it's a book of uh, the author like i want them to have the credit that's why with the godfather it's always called mario puzo's the godfather and i'm like well okay good for him sure but no one ever it's says mario puzo's the god whatever <laughs> Listen to the audio commentary. You can hear that exact same conversation. Yes, I stand by it. But Joe. Yes. Oh, shit. What are we talking about next week? And this is exciting because this film just got a Criterion announcement. Indeed it did. Yes, we are going to jaunt across the pond, but we're going to... Well, I was going to say we'll, we'll keep an American in the lead role, but then I realized, no, fucker, nope. she's Australian. <laughs> so uh, we're going to get a little ghostly. And we're going to talk about The Others. Nice. I truly don't think I have seen this since I saw it in theaters in 2001. All right. Well, I'm telling you now, you only get one scary movie reference. Oh, no, that's fair. I'm sorry. That's Scary Movie 3. You know, it's, the other spoofs in Scary Movie 3 aren't even the best part of the movie, so it's fine. You will not be getting any other spoofs <laughs> in, that, in that episode. <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless everyone until next week when we can talk the others we can cross out eyes of laura mars oh i was waiting to see if you're gonna put in the the no. again <laughs> and cross out horror queers Thanks,